Welcome back. Welcome in. This is Country Roads Confidential at Earsports.com, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. I am Mike Casaza in Morgantown, West Virginia. Chris Anderson, can't believe I'm saying this, home of the last place in the Big 12 West Virginia basketball team. I know this has been quite a losing streak and it has not been the best start to Big 12 play. Two and six overall now. I still have a hard time believing that this is the last place team in the best conference in college basketball. Granted, somebody has to be, but it's sharing space with Kansas State, which is a 500 team, and it was not long ago. In fact, it was a month ago. This team went into Texas thinking it was a top 25 team. Pretty good win-loss record at the time. But really, from that day, nothing has gone right. You had the COVID absences, a terrible schedule here in a row of really good games in conference and out of conference. Uh, players have slumped. Uh, you can see some confidence issues, I think, going away, but they were certainly there. And and this is what you have right now. It's it's quite a concoction that is, has stirred this drink the wrong direction here. But here we are, last place. I have a hard time believing it, even though it has happened. And you know what the strangest part about all this is? About the current the current situation that West Virginia basketball is in? I have a few theories, but what's strangest? What, as you noted, West Virginia tied for dead last in the cellar of the Big 12 Conference. And last night's performance, which put them there, is probably the best I've felt about the team in about a month, maybe. Mm-hmm. I just feel we'll go into it here in a minute, but I, just the way they played and, and, and Huggins kind of felt it at the end of that Arkansas game. He he was surprisingly upbeat for a coach of a team that had just lost five straight and and really was not. I don't want to say was never in it in that Arkansas game, but they kind of. I mean, they never led. I think it was only tied for twelve seconds. Uh, it fell behind by double digits pretty quickly, so kind of not in it. But were surprisingly spunky in the second half, and that had Huggins upbeat, and that caught me off guard. Not because Huggins is never upbeat, but it seemed like he saw something. And so I had a little bit of, I don't want to say confidence going into this Baylor game, but I felt like West Virginia would be competitive. And they were certainly that. Um, And and again, Huggins, very upbeat after the game, proud of his team. And I'm with him. I think this is the best, again, the best I've felt about this team. And we'll go into why in a few minutes, but the best I've felt about this team in a couple weeks. But. Yes. It continues. Texas don't have Sherman, Osaboyan, Kobe Johnson. Sherman definitely affected for some time. Maybe Osaboyan as well. Hard to tell with Kobe Johnson because he doesn't play as much. He isn't out on the stage for us to evaluate as often. But you could certainly say that Sherman was. Taz is probably back last night, bookend the month with COVID, and then 29 points on 15 shots. And then... Unfortunately for him and perhaps West Virginia, he gets slugged in the face by Jeremy Sohan. Inadvertently, of course, but no foul call, no nothing. Bob Huggins openly saying that his leading scorer has a concussion. And then Bob had a, a pretty vivid recollection of his history with concussions and how they could keep you out for a long time. So he's not optimistic that Sherman will even be available Saturday. Way too sure to say that's the case. But still kind of continue my point here nothing has been easy because of the schedule but nothing has been easy because of the circumstances here you go the one thing that really had to go for this team to get on track again was to find sherman 
shots, baskets, momentum because he's spooky, and he did it again last night. You could tell he really rattled that Baylor defense and crowd. But who knows if he plays Saturday at home when they haven't lost seven in a row since the end of the 2012-13 season. That was a bad team. This is not a bad team. This team is in a much different situation. It's competitive. It's playing, again, really good competition, but hasn't hasn't been as embarrassing at the end of this streak or at this stage of the streak. Can't even say it's the end as it was at the beginning. But if they don't have Sherman and if, and if he's got cobwebs for one game or or three games, who knows how this works? It's just kind of the same thing. They really they really almost can't catch a break in any any regard right now, too. And and I don't know the severity of it. I've uh, I've had my share of concussions. Can't even begin to compare it because that seems I don't want to say innocent not the right word, but it, it seemed like it wasn't like falling down and hitting your head in the floor, but he was definitely rattled out there too. Like on the court, you could tell he wasn't there. And then I just, it's impossible to say when that's going to go away for him. Yeah. it, it <clears throat> He crumbled to the floor and grabbed up at his head. I, I thought he got poked in the eye on, on first glance. I mean, it was very obvious even, even as it happened that he got hit in the face and I thought he got, Poked in the eye just based off of the, you know, you see it all the time when guys taking a, a finger to the eyeball and they go to the ground and they sit there for a second and they grab at their face. And that's kind of what what Sherman did. But as replay showed, I mean, you saw the guy reach in again, as you said, inadvertently. And I, I've been sure to stress that in my complaints about the non-call. It, it was inadvertent, but inadvertent doesn't mean not a foul, uh, not an obvious foul. And. It, he reached in, and his jaw literally did what you see in the, the cartoons, where his lower jaw goes straight to the left while the rest of his face is to the right, um, yeah. or vice versa, I guess, the way we were looking at Sherman. But it, it he took it right to the chin, and it, it obviously rattled him. But like you said, it was it's different when you think concussions. You think of a guy slamming his head on, on the ground, especially on the backside of his head, and—, and going lights out but he took a punch essentially to the face and and that was it and he was obviously rattled grabbed his head you saw the staff bringing ice out to him holding it up to his head and 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 kind of just leaning down almost I, I couldn't tell if he was crying which no, no fault in that for taking a hit like that in in that moment but then they just had to take him to the back it was so bad so it's obviously something and again no no clear um, answer on whether he's going to be there this weekend. I don't think they'll have it for a couple of days. I can't remember no. <laughs> what the uh, protocols are, but I know it's it's a couple of days before they'll even have a thought about you know what his status might be for Saturday because it, it, right now it's out of the coaching staff's hands. You know they have the specialists that that make those decisions just like they do in football, so won't have an answer for that for a while. I've heard in football that if you're if you're hit like on a Wednesday, there's no chance you're playing on a Saturday and that they, cause they try to go minimum five. So there's a chance. I mean, maybe I don't know who knows again, but like there's a chance, but to the reaction, it's a scary thing because your lights do go out and you know, they're back on, but you don't know what happened to why they, you don't have a recollection of that moment. You just know that all of a sudden you, you came to it on the floor of a basketball arena with a game going on around you. And you're not sure what happened before that. And then, you just don't have your wits about you, and and that's a that can be like a frightening moment there too. So whatever reaction you saw there, I, I I'm guessing that was extremely honest of him because I don't I don't know what type of filter you have in that situation because it's happening so fast and you're just trying to 
you're just trying to get your feet underneath you again and everything else is happening around you. It's overwhelming. I was stunned when they said he was getting up and checking back into the game. Um, I did turn the volume on at that point. <laughs> I was shocked when they said he was going back in the game. I was like, he looked like he was, I don't want to say out cold, but he did not look like he, he was there for a couple right. of seconds after that. And then they said, no, he's actually going to the back. And I was thinking, that's not good. And then I guess they diagnosed him. I'm, we're going on Huggins's diagnosis, but they, he, he was using the word concussion again and again and again after the game. Um, separate, non-separate, I don't know, in our game thread, right before tip-off, I apologize and said that that was a bad crew of officials. Um, there's those names that you see and there's combinations you see, and I think that there are sometimes teams or venues you see and you say, this isn't going to be good for for West Virginia. That's my area of expertise. I knew that wasn't going to be a good game for West Virginia. Not because they don't like him. I just knew that there was a combination there that I just thought this could be a tough game to play in, and that was not a well-officiated game. After what Huggins said was the best-officiated game, um, and I think you probably agree, right? Yeah, in, in my three immediate thoughts, I was one of my points because you hear people complain, especially fans, about uh, refs after every game. It's always the refs' fault. It's always missed calls. I haven't thought, of course, as over the course of you know twenty games, you're going to see some bad calls. You're going to see some good calls. You're going to see some bad calls. Nothing ever really stood out to me throughout the year as far as like a completely egregious showing. Um, the Arkansas game, I mean, I thought they were fine. and I, I, I found it interesting that Huggins went out of his way to praise that crew because that crew in the Arkansas game is a crew of refs that West Virginia never sees. Mm-hmm. Like, they rarely, if ever, see those guys. Um, now, and for a reminder for those listening, that the refs in the basketball are not like football where they're they're tied to a conference they kind of just free roam and but West Virginia never saw those refs really and and it I found it odd that Huggins went out of his way to praise them almost like man we keep getting stuck with Higgins and and Kip and all those guys and then we got these refs over here they're great and then you come back and you got Higgins and the usual crew. And I just knew and I said, Huggins should is going to unload on the reps after the game. And people are like, ah, oh, he doesn't do that anymore. He doesn't do that anymore. And he he restrained somewhat. But essentially his entire postgame radio, and you can touch on the, the meeting with the media, but the postgame radio was essentially the entire thing was the refs were bad, but I'm not going to flat out say the refs are bad because he talked a lot about Sherman getting punched in the face about him having a concussion, laying on the ground, the play not being stopped, how that affected the game, and then talked a lot about rebounding. And, you know, it was a big rebounding advantage. I think it was plus 10 for Baylor. And Huggins, without flat-out saying it, kind of flat-out said it, that the refs were letting Baylor push West Virginia in the back, go over their back, shove them, all this stuff, to get that rebound. And he he was – Telling everybody that he was going to cut up the clips and he was going to share them. And again, insinuating that he was going to share them with the league. Uh, It sounds like there's going to be formal, informal, whatever kind of complaint from West Virginia about this game. I love how everybody's like, well, Huggins is rich. He can just take the fine. Um, First (laughs) of all, Bob Huggins does not pay that fine. I'm pretty sure that's a check that gets scratched as long as there's nothing ridiculous to like, you know, throwing a chair in the court, but saying things and standing up for your team and players. I'm, Thinking that comes from the athletic department coffers. Yeah. Uh, he's been in trouble three times with the conference. Remember the three blind mice comment? Mm-hmm. 
that was the last time that I can remember him getting into it with the officials publicly. And I believe that was specifically stated. That was his third such incident um, by the Big 12. I don't know what happens after three, but like third time's a charm, three strikes, you're out. Uh, fool me once, fool me twice. There is no three, so you're, even, you're past the 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 border there you're is that it's like suspension i don't know what it would be but like i think he's got to be really careful what he has to say and man he's he's just smart like he he's going to get everybody to do the work <laughs> for him on this one because you're going to see cut-ups and you're going to see the next play-by-play person talking about it and i'll be darned if they don't have a lot of friendly whistles saturday at home um i don't know if any of these officials will be there they certainly could but um maybe not either <laughs> big Tom might be smart to do that favor for the officials so they're not here because imagine if imagine if Hagen showed up here Saturday oh god <laughs> um hey good signs in this one Sherman comes out of it Sean McNeil had some swagger um, those two uh 29 points 10 of 15 6 for 11 3 for 5 for Sherman getting to the foul line had been something he wasn't very good at of late um and hugging to talk about his explosion finishing through contact getting around the rim so that was good um a four-point play but two other two-shot fouls and then McNeil, 16 points, nine shots, two of four from three. Um, he also had five rebounds. Turned it over four times. Sherman turned it over five times. That's 90 or 15. But I, I kind of feel like those two, those two being active had the ball a lot, almost like in point guard situations where um, they were they were charged at least starting the offense and running it or getting it running. But beyond that, just like a collection of, of like this and that. Um, you've looked at the box score, right? Yep. Studied it? Yeah, I was going to ask you over under six points for Jalen Bridges. Uh, I'm going to guess under because I also remember, I think he had zero rebounds too. None. None. He had huh. eight points. Not that, but he had eight points and three assists. So again, they were moving the ball. 16 assists is like two games for them lately, but he had eight points, but man, it didn't seem like another good game for him. And he had a hard time inside Saturday against Arkansas and then Cottrell six points for him early and then quiet after that. And then your next score is Seth Curry. Excuse me. <laughs> Seth Wilson. We reminded you of Seth Curry with a, a D3 at the end of the first half, a D3 at the end of the second half, but that's his only six points in two minutes. But I mean, just contributions from a lot of sources, but not a lot of contributions there. So in some regard, great. Got the two scores going again. But, man, that search for a third score is is just so hard. And you're thinking, oh, maybe it's Kedrian Johnson. No. Uh, Bridges just, frankly, it's it's late, man. Like, And if he's not going to have it going at this point, then is it going to happen? I don't know. But eight points is one thing. No rebounds is another. That's discouraging for a game where they, they got smoked on the boards. And we can talk about that. Cottrell, six, but four of them early. Osaboyan didn't get it going and just didn't have anything in reserve from anybody else. So... They they find their way to 77, but they get a wealth of it from Sherman and McNeil. Good sign, bad sign there. Yeah, interesting stat. I think it, it – I can't remember who said it. Somebody somebody said it to – sent it to me, but it was from somewhere else, so I apologize if, if you were the one that did it, Mike, or if it was somebody else that's listening. But uh, when West Virginia shoots 50% or better under Bob Huggins, 80 and 5. Amazing. And now 80 – and six after last night. Um, the shot with 54% from the floor. Uh, which way do we want to go right now? Do we want to go a little more, a little more positive or do we want to talk some of the negatives from last night? Well, let's, let's do at large. Cause I think it's, I think that's, it's actually an interesting transition you pose because that's, that's kind of the fork in the road they're at right now. Like, do they feel good about things even though they've lost so many in a row, but they played three, three pretty good halves of basketball in a row. 
and they have a huge asterisk on this one here. Granted, Baylor has one too. We'll get to that. But you could also be like, listen, I don't care. They're last place. They got a long way to go to get into the, not probably not a long way to go, but they're going to have to do some work to get into the NCAA tournament in that they can't continue to lose games. Like, I understand they haven't lost anybody good yet or anybody bad yet. Great. Doesn't matter. You can lose all the good games out there, but if you don't have wins, you're not going to make it. So they do need to win, but again, it's kind of like an inkblot test here. How do you feel about things given the way they are? That's how they answer that question probably has a lot to do with what happens next. And I think we're seeing some of it, but they got to be on the right side of the scoreboard soon. Yeah. The, the offense I think was, was a plus um, one position, not in particular, but uh, as far as, I don't know if it was a change in philosophy or just being aggressive. It was something that I talked about in that Arkansas game. When they went on that run in the Arkansas game, it was attack the rim, attack the rim. If you get met at the rim, dish it out for a three. And West Virginia seemed to take that philosophy for most of the game. I mean, the first half was was like my ideal type of offense for this team where they attempted 26 shots, 22 of those 26 shots were threes or layups or dunks. And for all those people that love analytics, that's the perfect offense as far as analytics go. You know, advanced statistics about what's the most efficient way to score on offense. It's driving to the basket or shooting threes. Absolutely nothing else. And then of the four that were not, two of them were the uh, Cottrell baskets you talked about. And both of those, somebody drove to the rim and then dished it back out to Cottrell for a wide-open mid-range jumper, which is his ideal shot as well. And then the other two, I believe, were Sean McNeil pull-up jumpers, which, again, I've been pushing for weeks that he needs to just shoot. Just shoot the ball. You, you, are, you are a scorer, just shoot the ball. So I didn't have issues with those either. It was like the perfect first half as far as what I think this West Virginia offense should be. Now, it wasn't as uh, – it wasn't – Quite as good in the second half. You know, that that threes and layups number dropped, the uh, ratio dropped to 12 of 21. Or actually, I think there was a three at the end, so maybe it was 13 of 22, which is not terrible, better than what it was the rest of the year, but not quite what it was in the first half. And I think we saw that with how the second half went, how Baylor was able to kind of itch back. But also, that could be adjustments from Baylor, pushing out on threes, tacking, you know, defending the rim a little better, all that stuff, and, and kind of giving – up the mid-range and and begging West Virginia to try to shoot that. Because they will. Yeah. Yeah, so sometimes they'll take the data there a little bit too. Um, Yeah, great observation, and it worked. And this is not the first time you or I have said this. I can remember the Texas game where they didn't have Sherman and Osaboy, and they were like, all right, we're missing a really big part of our offense and another guy who can make it go. Perhaps we shouldn't get into, like, obsession about running sets. Let's get the ball off the glass or inbounded and go and try to score. And they were going high ball screens. They were whipping the ball around, and they were in that game early, and then they just changed. And then some pattern behavior in their losses here is just trying to run sets to get shots, and then especially Sherman and McNeil. And it's so hard, and, like, this is just kind of one snapshot here, but they they run, like, what they call an elevator screen where one guy has the ball, and then, like, Sherman is trying to run through traffic, and then two other guys are closing the door, basically, to set a screen that – so basically it's like Indiana Jones, and you're trying to, like, slip through while the two – other teammates are closing the door on the screen and all of a sudden you got a wall that requires four people right you only yeah. have five it's hard to do a lot off of that and if that doesn't work well then you're taking time off and then things back up and you restart again it's hard to do and like last night i just felt like they said we don't have a point guard so let's not even worry about that and then i'm not i mean like sherman 
McNeil, Osaboyan, uh, Bridges, they all handled the ball quite a bit last night. Gabe especially, and he did some really good things too. And it was just kind of like this, let's stop with this thing about how Kedrian Johnson has to start the offense. Malik Curry has to start the offense. Kobe Johnson has to start the offense. No, just get into it. And then they ran a lot of motion last night, and they ran sharp, they ran hard, they moved people around, they got open, and like it just it was a good tactic as Baylor was short. They only had two, uh, three people off the bench. They made him really work on defense, and the offense was good. I mean, they got to keep that going. However they can bottle that, that'd be great. But just running around and cutting and, and working with each other, it seemed like it really worked. And if, that, if that's a product of good attitudes, um, if that's a product of really good practices, whatever, but bottle it and keep it going because these defenses aren't going to slow down. Their offense has to be there, and, and it was too. So that's that's encouraging. Again, this is, this is a stat that, I don't know if it's just on the scoreboard now or what, but it's worth tracking down. They trailed by 10 or more in six straight games, nine of 11 and 12 out of 20 overall, which is bad. But lately they don't look like they're phased by it, which does speak to some confidence and maybe some offense. Like the players know, like I always say, guys know, like they just know. And then maybe that's why Huggins is so emphatic after Saturday's game that it was coming and why he feels like it's probably getting even closer after last night. But players know too like if they're if they're practicing well and guys are doing good things they're going to feel a lot better so you, you kind of want to believe what they're saying that it's going to pay off soon otherwise it's going to get bad but they found something on offense and then yeah just just trying to work within what's there and like what they can do rather than trying to force things they can i just think about like the times they looked really bad they had a couple spots where they turned it over like four or three or four or five times in a row once in the first half once in the second half and a lot of it was just trying to enter the ball in the post and like, why are they doing that? <laughs> they can't get offense there. Like, so just trying to force that, whether it was with like a high ball screen and trying to flip it to get the play running or like throw it into Polycap, who just can't post a guy up who's bigger than heavier than him, especially when he's like 12 feet from the basket. Stop that. Like, let your guys go. And when they did, they were good last night. That was that was encouraging. So you're 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 big on headlines and mottos it is. Are we going with the best WVU offense? No offense is the best offense. For WVU, I'm looking at my three things from January 1st, and like it's called the no offense offense. Yeah, okay, well, second. Yeah. because like I, I just think that's the way to go. They, they have talented players, and I don't know, like I, I think at that time you would have been okay with like Bridges, for example, taking an early possession three. I don't know about that right now. Like that's a guy who maybe needs to be putting the ball on the ground, and like he posted up inside a couple times and did okay things. And at the very least, he him on the block. He's six seven and he can do something. It gets him in the position to rebound, and he needed to wake up and rebound last night. But also, it it just flips the defense around and makes them do something different, and that's going to create some room on the perimeter for Sherman and McNeil. If you take a guy off the perimeter like Bridges, it's going to create some room for those two guys to run around. So I think that's good. But like, how much of that was like called like, hey, run number four? I don't think so. I think it was just them trying to run something they were familiar with in practice and they knew could work. And look at at times last night they had they had Baylor's defense spinning. It was good. Is it time to talk about the point guard problem? I think we are, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. As in, let everybody else touch the ball and just don't run an offense because of the point guard. But the, I think the bigger problem with the point guard problem is that the problem is also on defense. Like, I can't stress enough that Keedy Johnson, who is one of the fastest players I've ever seen and who is – being hailed as a defensive stopper did not play a lick of defense last night. Like Ooh. at all. Uh, I, Curry I doesn't give you much there either. 
No, Curry wasn't doing. I mean, Curry, wait, three minutes, three fouls, gone, done. That was it. Um, but Kitty on, I mean, on inbounds plays, it looked like he didn't care. Like I, I don't know, he he just wasn't even there. His guy literally, they they were running a line, a stack out of the inbounds underneath the basket, and the thing with inbounds plays is you can get really creative with them, but you're not creating new ones throughout the year. So when you line up for them, these are extremely well-scouted plays. Like West Virginia should know exactly what Baylor is doing out of inbounds. They should know exactly where every single player is going. They should know exactly where every single player on every single team is going on every single inbounds play. It's just, there's only so many ways you can do it. And they're very well-scouted. I mean, every, again, I know there's people who hate hearing this, but I played at a much lower level and played much fewer minutes than a lot of these guys. But I remember every single practice as we were prepping for the upcoming opponent, here's their inbounds plays. Here are their inbounds plays. Here are their inbounds plays. We went over it every single game. Every single game we went over the other team's inbounds plays. And Baylor, I think, had like two wide open threes, a couple easy layups just off of inbounds plays. And a lot of the times it was Keedy's man. And a lot of the times it was him just kind of slowly trailing his man from behind, which you can't do in those situations. So it was it was a rough go at the point guard spot last night. Yeah. And the valuable point guard is James Akinjo, where that team was in a bad spot, didn't have offense available, like 26 points on the bench. And Matt Mayer, for most of the game, wasn't there. And then you had to get something from the guy who could score, and he did. So, And that was just him taking the ball to the basket, getting guys involved he could, but also going to the foul line. It, it really does help, too. Um, the the bummer, I think, if you're, if you're a fan, is that, yeah, this is winnable, and Sherman gets hurt for sure. But, boy, Baylor was right for the pickings. I mean, yeah. they just had nothing. Like this missing Cryer and missing Flagler. That's a perimeter team that that does have big people, but does not have big person offense so much. And you can tell Flo Thomas is a good player. Like he's a good part. But West Virginia was was just not letting him do that pick and roll thing. They were sending a guy from the corner and slapping down the ball. He's kind of a slow lumbering guy. He's big. He rebounds. He's a good force for them against some opponents that wasn't against West Virginia, believe it or not. And and he was out of the game. And then again, like just just a essentially a two-person bench, and maybe even not even that, because, again, Thama didn't play very much, and Turner didn't play very much off the bench, so not much there. But a short team playing freshman, not getting its customary perimeter offense, and they shift gears. They let their point guard do it, and they crush West Virginia on the boards. And that's going to happen sometimes, but, yeah, a minus 10 rebounding margin is discouraging. 24-2 to in second-chance points. That's the game right there. That's a bad thing, because... You have a chance against a team that doesn't have all of its armament, and they find something else to exploit, and they did. That's not the way Baylor plays, but that's the way they played last night, and it worked out splendidly for a team exactly when it had to happen. 17 offensive rebounds last night. Yeah, versus 17. how many rebounds for West Virginia? 26 yeah. total. So not great. And then just 24 to 2 in second chance points. That's that's tough. And then here's what's even more discouraging, I think, too. Bench. 31 minutes, 7 minutes, 26 minutes. So uh, Flo Thama played 12 minutes starter. And then uh, the other reserve is Jordan Turner. He played 7 minutes. So basically they just played like one guy off the bench. They outscored West Virginia's bench 
And still, West Virginia probably wins this game if Matt Mayer doesn't go bonkers in the final three minutes of the game. He was having a forgettable night, and then he makes it a memorable one, too. And that guy has killed West Virginia in the past two seasons. Just killed him. The offensive rebounds for Baylor down the stretch. West Virginia is up one, gets a stop. But offensive rebound, put back, dunk, down one. West Virginia's down one, gets a stop. This is with three three minutes left. Gets a stop. Offensive rebound, Baylor makes a jumper. Now Baylor's up three. Uh, a couple minutes later, but about a minute and a half left. West Virginia is down two, gets a stop. So opportunity to you know, tie or take the lead. Nope. Offensive rebound, foul, makes both free throws. Now down four. Down four, gets a stop. You'd be able to cut it to one possession. Nope. Offensive rebound, put back. Basically game at that point, going down yeah. six with like 40, 30 seconds left. So just just some rough, rough stuff there on the offensive glass. I mean, again, it was all game long, and but the ones down the stretch were just, just absolute backbreakers. And, and West Virginia wasn't returning the favor, as you know. What did you say, 24 to 2 on yeah. second chance points? That's, <laughs> I mean, that's a definite loss. When it's when it's twenty four to two, and and to be quite honest, when it's twenty four to two like that in second chance points, it's amazing that it was only a four point game. Yeah, honestly, if Mayor doesn't go crazy, they they probably win that game because he was getting the second chance points. He made a three out of nowhere. He had two assists, or he all of a sudden looked like he was awake again. And like that's the guy that that's the one the one thing that couldn't happen it actually happened. But he's a good player. He he's again he's had their number for two seasons now, so that'll happen here too. Um, no real changes from Huggins. He's talked about lineup changes, playing freshmen more, yada, yada, yada. I just – I don't know how or when or he's he's going to do that. I don't know who the who is. It does seem like he's kind of losing some faith in some players. And then it, it seems like Polycap and Curry in particular. Curry is going to surprise a lot of people. But if you're reading between the lines, he's definitely talking about Curry in some things, about me first instead of team first. Curry comes in and, and right away goes for a drive. gets an offensive foul. Again, three fouls doesn't play a lot, but they could have used more than zero points from him last night. And I think in Big 12 play, 20, I'm trying to remember here if I have this right, uh, 49 shots and five assists. That's not mm. going to do it. <laughs> and yeah, and that's kind of what Huggins is talking about with him, I think. Polycap, he's, he's just not playing him anymore because he's not helpful. Two fouls last night, three minutes there, not getting a lot there. Kerrigan's been better. This is a long bench in the fact that they'll play people, but not for very long. Um, you're looking Polycap, three minutes. Wilson, two minutes. Curry, three minutes. Even Kerrigan only got nine last night, and he'd been okay. It wasn't bad last night either. Um, but who? Are you, what are you going to do? Like, you, you can't. They're not going to play Wilson much more, although if Johnson comes back to earth and Curry continues to play like he has, maybe. But he's not really an on-the-ball guy, so it's got to be Kobe Johnson, who is this out there sometimes? Analytics love him, but I don't. I don't know my favorite Kobe Johnson game. I just don't know where they're going to get it. Jamel Kane didn't even get into this one here. Who knows with Oconquo? My my point being that even as they've lost, and when you lose and you fall further in the standings and closer toward 500, you think there's an initiative to make changes, and people will say, you know, stop doing the same things. That's the definition of insanity. They're they're getting closer with with who they were and what they were, and just by sticking with that, that seems like their best chance to get to where they want to go. I don't, you might make some major or some minor changes, like maybe you get South Wilson some more playing time. 
not a significant change. I don't think he's going to get you eight minutes a half, maybe eight minutes a game. But it's by and large going to be who and what they have, what they've done, and hoping it gets better. And hoping that this has kind of been a rock tumbler of these past six games and that they're better because of it once they're out of it. Malik Curry, it's time on the court. Gets in at 13-19 in the first half. Immediately fouls somebody 40 feet from the basket. Then gives up an open jumper. Then gets the ball back, drives to the lane, charge, pull from the game. Second half. Comes in. Draws a foul. Misses both free throws. Comes back down to the other end. And even though West Virginia has Baylor scrambling, I mean, they're 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 in scramble drill for those who know practice things like they're, they're throwing the ball all over the place and, and West Virginia's getting pressure on them. And Malik Curry just runs up a two hand shoves a Baylor player with the ball for some reason, to the point that Gabe Osaboyan, Gabe is looking at him like, what the heck are you doing? It's pulled out of the game right away. That's it for the night. Like, I, I don't know where I wrote this or maybe I said it here, but I said that his offense was like detrimental to the offense at large. And people kept saying that's our best chance to stay in the game. He's the only one keeping us in the game. I get that. But look what's happened. Like, he's he's so intent on scoring that he's not watching what's happening around him. It's driving Huggins crazy. And then, like, that that can sometimes, when, when you're on your own script, when you're doing monologues all the time, that typically affects other parts of the game. And we're seeing that right now. He's, he's in a funk. He knows how to score. He was getting to the line and knocking him down before. He's in a funk right now. Like, they got to get him going again, too, because – of him or Kedrian Johnson, who's more likely to get you offense every night? Probably, uh, probably, <laughs> probably Malik Curry. Um, but right now, like it's it's who knows? It's kind of a coin flip, and, and we'll see that there too. Uh, as we go here, Chris, um, there's a whole urge here for people to conflate football and basketball, and what okay. we just saw in football is what we're seeing in basketball. Oh, this offense isn't fun to watch. Oh, this team is going nowhere. It's a 500 team. It just seems like what's what's happened recently is what you're conditioned to apply to what you're watching now. Common fan stuff. I get that. At the end of the season, there's an expectation that Huggins will or has to make changes. And beyond that, that Shane Lyons will get involved because he definitely did involve himself in football. There's a change there. Everybody feels better about it. And I just don't know where I am on this. Football stats are not like basketball stats. Um, right. Yeah, we, talk, we talked about this, right? Right. I, I think so. But, like, how, how dangerous is it to apply the football analogy to basketball? Especially when you consider the ingredients for basketball here, too. Hall of Fame coach won a lot. This team is, is – is, it's not cooked. It's on the burner. But it can also pull itself off the burner here, too. But um, you also have an AD who, who did involve himself and, and probably at least – in the offseason has been rewarded by court of public opinion. What does that mean? I don't know, but it's certainly an interesting dilemma. I don't know if that's a great conversation to have right now, but it's it's a dilemma that probably has your attention. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 we did talk about this, I think, in the mailbag, and you brought up one point, I brought up another, and, and both of them still hold true. The, the first point you brought up was Bob Huggins is not like Neil Brown, and Neil Brown is not like Bob Huggins. This is Neil Brown's first Power 5 job. He is a young guy. Bob Huggins has been around forever. He's a Hall of Famer. He has had a bad year, bounced back. We've seen him fix it without intervention. So there's a huge difference right there. And then the second part is the fact that 
in football, you have coordinators and the offensive coordinator has an identity and the defensive coordinator has an identity and they can be different or the same as the head coach and you can change it from year to year. The identity of a basketball team is the head coach, period. I don't care who the assistant coaches are if you're talking about identity. Like, I mean, you want good assistant coaches. And I'm not saying the current assistant coaches are not good. What I'm saying is if you're saying, oh, oh, we need to change the offense, get a new assistant coach in here, what is that going to solve? Any, no new assistant coach is going to change the offense, quote unquote. No, no assistant coach is going to change the identity of this team or what Bob Huggins wants it to be. Uh, that is where there's a huge difference in basketball and football. So calling for an assistant coach change is not going to suddenly turn West Virginia into some, you know, up and down three point shooting, 85 points a night kind of team. Yeah. And another part of this that, that kind of bugs me and it alarms me a little bit too, is saying people say, well, we don't have an identity right now. I don't think that's true at all. Like you're watching their offense. It's, it's not great. I get that. But they're trying to get scores of the basket, whether they're trying to get post-ups or they're trying to get ways for people to get free into the lane, whether it's Sherman or, or Bridges or somebody. But you're seeing that they do a lot of like four out stuff. They do. And they run motion like you can see it. That's what they do. And you may not like it. You may think motion is kind of a strange offense for 2022. You may not like the idea of having to get the bottom of the post for players who can't score down there. You may not might not like the idea of inverting their guards to post up. But we've seen We've seen these things like that is their identity. It's what they're trying to do. And like that motion from last night was encouraging because that's when Huggins' offensive teams have been good or at least like coherent. They played off motion and they played really well. So that was encouraging there, too. And I just don't think that it's just so it's a lazy thing to say. It's like, oh, what's our identity? It's there just because it wasn't there for football. It doesn't mean the same thing as like the problem is the same. Doesn't mean the description is the same. They have bad offenses. Great. It doesn't mean you can call it the same thing. Except parts aren't firing right now. Like individuals who aren't scoring and hitting, but like, look at last night when, when they got rolling, it was 11 straight points, I think. And it was all Sherman and McNeil on four straight made baskets. Sometimes it's that easy. Just get your guys to throw touchdowns or make three pointers. Ta-da. It works. Um, I'll close with this. I won't say who this is from. If this person wants to come forward and take credit, that's fine. Um, I did not actually check for clearance on this, but I'll share the information. 30 assistant coaches in the big 12, right? 10 teams. Everybody has three. Yeah. Rank them from one to 30 in tenure. West Virginia has three of the top five tenures. Wow. Three, four, and five in Eric Martin, Larry Harrison, Ron Everhart. The only assistant coaches who've been at their schools longer, uh, Jerome Tang and Baylor, who's just not going to leave unless like Baylor opens or like some, some major school. And then Chris Lowry at Kansas State, who's been with Weber like his entire career, except when he was the head coach at Southern Illinois. I think Weber was at Illinois at that point. Three, four, and five are Martin, Harrison, and Ronnie Everhart. I don't know what that says, but that's strange. And, like, is that is that valid? Is that a complaint? Is that a critique? Or is that earned? That's a good conversation. I don't know. Um, they have two full tenure staffs. What I mean by that is they've been there the entire time. Two assistant coaches have been there the entire time. Um, I think one coach in the Big 12, that's the same. Um, that's crazy. Average tenure, 4.7 years in the Big 12, right? So your average coach has been there for 4.7 years. West Virginia, 13 years. Chew. Almost three times as long. Baylor's is 10. Kansas 
is 8.6. Kansas State's 5.6. Everybody else is three or less. It's something to discuss. Staff hasn't had a turnover, a replacement, in 10 years. That's unbelievable in college basketball or college sports. Any sport. Chris, you might get fired in the next couple of years from your <laughs> coaching job, right? Keep tying these games. Yeah. Uh, and then again, bring that up. Sore spot. Sore spot. Too soon. Seven staffs at an assistant this year. Now, there's four new head coaches. That's fine. Um, it's crazy. I just it's. It's such a it's such a unique quality for staffing in college sports. And again, it may be valid. It may be justified. West Virginia hasn't had a ton of bad seasons, but I think you can look at the past couple and be like, huh, strange. And you could look at what's happening now and be like, huh, strange. Does it stale? Does it need to be fixed? I don't know. But like, I just found those numbers interesting. The fact that the three, four, and five, 10 years in the Big 12 are on the same bench and I haven't had a change in 10 years. It's crazy to me. It's just one of those things I think will get talked about and examined as we go along. And, and to what end, I don't know. Well, that was your ending note. My ending note? Something we've been monitoring all year. Points in the paint. West Virginia. And we can talk about this on the board and maybe I'll write a story about it later in the week. But in wins is not great, but it's even. 28-28, West Virginia and their opponents. In losses, 22 for West Virginia, 34 on average for their opponents. Um, again, this is a combination of Perimeter players not staying in front of their man. You know, the old infamous Bob Huggins line of straight line driving, straight line driving guys. And also having, you know, what, three six foot six guys playing center. Um, and I, I they, they do a pretty good job for protecting the rim for six foot six guys. But it's still there's a difference. There is a difference when when you have a six six guy trying to guard a six eight, six nine, six ten guy that's two hundred thirty pounds. So uh, real quick, we went long. Oh, surprise. But yeah. college football, someone should break this news to Jim Harbaugh. But signing day is tomorrow. The Michigan yep. coach will be interviewing at Minnesota in the NFL. <laughs> but signing day is tomorrow, which, again, it's the watered down version. I get that. But some some things to keep an eye on here. You and I will come back. We'll talk about the the after the fact later in the week. They're going to do some some things on Wednesday and they'll have some things left to do after we're going to focus on what's left after that. We'll let the chips fall on the table tomorrow, but the elevator pitch, Chris, what's going on with Saturday tomorrow? Well, uh, what Monday night, right before the game, junior college wide receiver Cortez Raham commits to West Virginia, expect his signature to come across. And then basically kind of just waiting on kicker, Chad Ryland, uh, Eastern Michigan transfer, um, Pretty darn good kicker, coveted by uh, a lot of schools. He's down to what I'm hearing is Maryland and West Virginia, but Rutgers was also in there, had him up for a visit, um, kind of making a pitch. He he wants to get out there, get exposed for one more year before the NFL. So might be waiting till tomorrow. He's been kind of quiet. Sometimes, you know, those decisions just pop up the day before. It might even be later today. Who knows? But that'll be the focus, I think, for the next couple of days and and then you're waiting on other transfers that could decide at any time. Transfers do not have to decide by signing day. They do not have to sign. We've already seen that, um, you know, over the holidays when, when tight end Brian Palendi and cornerback Marcus Floyd, they didn't sign. They just committed. And then a few days later, West Virginia announced them because they signed their, uh, I mean, they signed their or enrolled or whatever. They signed their financial aid agreement. They didn't sign a letter of intent. So you can sign that financial aid agreement at any time. There is there is no you know signing period for that. 
So we'll see. I think it's going to be a long summer, spring and summer of, of recruiting news. There's the, the, the days of hit it real big at the end of January, early February, and then go on vacation for a month are gone. It's just, it's gone. It's going to be a constant stream of recruiting news. Business booming. Good for us. Business is booming. You know, you know what business, you know what page is getting the most page views right now? That, that, oh. that Michigan commitment list. Really? I, bet, I wonder if that's up in, <laughs> in the coach's office right now. Can you imagine that? <laughs> I'll tell you what, man, I'd be doing that. Even kids sign. I mean, you can't talk to the kids that are signed already. And, and it looks like, 22 of the 23 have already signed, but um, it, that's pretty easy get out if those kids are upset about that. Um, so keep an eye on that. I mean, there are definitely a few guys on that list that West Virginia has offered and we're in contention with. So, well, F5 in the Push Car Center, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, refresh that page. Sounds good. Well, until then, I'm Mike Casaza. And I'm Chris Anderson. We'll talk to you next time.